0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Ben's Friends is the food and beverage industry support group, offering hope, fellowship, and a path forward to professionals who struggle with substance abuse and addiction. Ben's Friends exists to provide a safe haven and an anonymous, judgment-free forum for workers in an industry that has one of the highest rates of substance abuse in the country. Their mission hasn't changed during quarantine. Ben's Friends chapters across the country are now offering online meetings. You can find a chapter near you at BenFriendsHope.org.
2: Hello, This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary woman who I admire. I admire their vision, their success, and their approach to this incredible world of food and hospitality. My guest today is Susan Spungen. I've known Susan for decades, first when she was at Martha Stewart Living, but as her career has progressed and evolved, she styled beautiful stories for food and wine, she has been a stylist for Hollywood, and she has recently written a fabulous cookbook that everybody has to go out and buy. Why? Because we're going to be doing a lot of cooking at home. Susan, welcome to Speaking Broadly.
1: Thank you for having
2: me. So. The thing that is on my mind, and I think everybody's mind, is we need advice for what we're going to eat during the coronavirus, which could go for weeks, it could go for longer, and you have a knack for developing recipes that are both simple but also interesting. And the thing that I'm most worried about, aside from actually finding the food, is keeping it interesting. So I wonder if we can start with your thoughts on like a pantry?
1: Well, I did a really kind of a big initial stock up where I thought about things that were going to last a long time, you know, at least a good week before I might have to think about getting anything more. Everybody's talking about beans. I have luckily had a lot of dry beans that I kept buying at the farm stands and stuff last summer. And and just didn't get around to using. But I also made sure I had a lot of onions, which would last me for a couple of weeks. I picked up some stuff from my local farmer who had potatoes from the winter. So we have a big bag of potatoes. I bought quite a few squash, like a couple of whole butternut squash and acorn squash, which I love to stuff with various things. A lot of times, A dinner from one night becomes the stuffing for a squash the next night. So I get sort of two dinners out of one cook session. And then I did buy quite a bit of meat and froze it. I mean, like pork tenderloins and chicken and some ground turkey and sausage and everything that I bought initially, I put in the freezer And as far as fresh veggies, I I got cauliflower, broccoli, things like that, things that were going to last a little while. Also for salads, radicchio, endive. I've had all this stuff for more than a week and it's still perfectly good. So I'm using it, little by little. I think one of
2: the things that you're pointing out there, which is important and interesting, is if you're going to buy lettuce, you're going to want to buy like a radicchio, which can last a long time, versus a leafy green, which is going to die and be super depressing. It's like you bought it and you didn't get to finish it up.
1: Right. And then I also have celery and fennel and things like that, things that I like to make salads out of that aren't really lettuce that last a really long time. I'm
2: Wondering what you might've added to a flavor pantry. Like I tried in the first week to have one Thai dinner, you know, one Mexican, one Vietnamese, they were all actually based on flavorings rather than the protein or the green.
1: Well, I had a bunch of dried chilies. So I did make like a chili the other night. I cooked some black beans and then I actually took all the dried chilies that I had. Usually I'll use them as I need them. A lot of people don't really know what to do when they see those big dried chilies, but those are a great thing to have. And if you see them in the market now, grab some because they add so much flavor to everything. But it's very, very simple. They, I think people get confused about, well, how do I use this?
2: I'm totally one of those people, just so you know. I have like two pl- little plastic bags of the really big kinds. And I'm like, I don't know what to do because they're not hot.
1: So I took all that I had left, which weren't that many. I kind of pop off the stem and shake out the seeds that are loose. You don't need to get them all out, but a few. And then you bring a saucepan of water to a boil or a kettle, and you could pour the boiling water over them in a bowl. Either way, you just get them into boiling water. So you put all the chilies into boiling water. When it cools down, the chilies will be soft. And then you just put all of the chilies and, and and enough water to get the blender moving, like into your Vitamix blender or a Cuisinart or any kind of blender and just puree that. So then you have this almost like a chili puree and that's a really great flavoring for any kind of chili. You could add it to any kind of bean dish. So I d- basically took all the chilies I had left and just made a couple jars of this chili puree. I didn't need it all for this one chili because I thought, why not save the time and then I'll have this handy in the fridge. So I'm really glad I did that. Next time I go out, if I see any milder chilies like ancho or guajillo, I'm going to grab those too.
2: I'm totally doing that at the end of this conversation because they're just sitting there and that's ex- exactly the type of thing that's easy to do ahead.
1: Exactly. And it's almost like a chili sauce. And you can also then taste it if you're not sure how hot all those chilies are. Once you've made that puree, you can just sort of dip your finger in or a Taste it see how hot it is so you know how much to add to your chili.
2: And what about other things that are lying around? Like in my house, in my spice store, there are things that are probably dying there. Like, is there anything for me to, to do with them during this moment where I'm trying to make the most of everything I have? Or should I just
1: dump them. And I think this is not a good time to throw anything out. In fact, maybe I would normally throw out a broccoli stem, but I'm not doing that right now. I'm like putting it back in the fridge because I'm like, well, maybe I'll make a soup out of it. You know, in the last few years, so many chefs and recipes have taught us how to sort of do zero waste cooking. So we all have a little bit of practice with that. But I think now is the time to really try to save everything. (laughs) I have some, I mean, it sounds like my refrigerator is stocked with a million things. It isn't, but
2: I do have kale with really woody stems. And I I actually happen to love broccoli stems, but what what do you do with your broccoli stems, kale stems and carrot tops? Yeah.
1: Broccoli stems usually need Peeling. Like they can be a bit tough or hard to digest. So when you get down to a really big woody stem, it's better to peel it. If you like making any kind of puree soup, they can always go in there. But you could also just chop them up a little bit finer. And let's say you're making a soup. So when you're doing this sofrito, whatever, the onions, the carrots, the celery, which is the other great thing why we need celery on on hand, both for snacks, for soups, and for salads. But you can just put it in there with the onions and the celery, the stuff that gets cooked a little bit longer it's just going to add a little bit of bulk and a little bit of more nutrition to whatever you're cooking. Or you could put it in Cuisinart or your uh, hand grater and just grate it and add that to a salad too. Like when you buy broccoli slaw at the supermarket, if you buy broccoli slaw, that's all it is, is broccoli stems. So make like a slaw with it, mix it. If you have any cabbage or carrots, you could mix it with that. For the kale stems, I have started using those. I always strip my leaves off the stems because I just don't find them nice to eat together. And they kind of cook at a different rate or marinate at a different rate if you're just making a raw salad. So I just take the stems and I chop them up fine and I would do the same thing. I'd add them earlier in the process to a soup. I'd probably add those again along with the celery, carrots, onions. And then I might add the leaves at the very end. I wonder if there's anything from your book that we could point people towards that is great for baking now. Well, I'm going to start with banana bread only because I think everybody's been grabbing bananas when they see them by the bunch. Like I used to buy two or three at a time and then I'd maybe get two or three ripe ones and two or three green ones. Now I've been trying to buy green bunches when I'm in the store and they've only had green bunches because everyone's been buying so many. And everywhere I've shopped, I have not seen a banana shortage yet. I didn't want to bake banana bread until I saw a surplus of overly ripening bananas. So yesterday I finally made the banana buckwheat loaf in my book and a lot of people have been making that. I also, I found some sour cherries in my freezer from almost two years ago. Now is the time to use any fruit that you put away, whether you make little hand pies or tartlets. I mean, it's funny, a lot of people on my Instagram, when I posted that said, oh yeah, I forgot I had some tower cherries too, or I have this kind of berry. The berries that are in
2: my freezer have so much frost. They look like Jose Andreas before he shaved his
1: beard. You'd be surprised, you know, give it a try. The cherries also had a lot of frost on them. I put them in a colander and sort of just shook off the frost and kind of picked off any big chunks of frost that I saw. And I have to say they baked up really nice and they were delicious. So actually, I think cookies are always a good idea. And in my book, I have my dessert chapter actually leads with four good cookies. And the triple ginger chocolate chunk cookies, if you have most of the ingredients, you'll be fine. You don't need to put three kinds of ginger, even though I love it with fresh ginger. Just leave it out if you don't have it. If you don't have the crystallized ginger, you can leave that out. But those are delicious. The uh, multi-nut shortbread is another one. That's one that where you could freeze logs of the dough and cut them off and bake them when you want them and cornmeal thumbprints with preserves now that's a really good one because i bet most people have a bag of cornmeal lying around from something this one is just two cups of flour which hopefully you already had before the hoarders came to the stores half a cup of yellow cornmeal half a teaspoon of coarse kosher salt 10 tablespoons unsalted butter softened two-thirds of a cup of sugar Two teaspoons grated lemon zest, which I love. But if you don't have any lemons, you can leave it out. Three large egg yolks. Save the whites for omelets or anything else. Half a teaspoon of vanilla extract. And then whatever jams and preserves you might have around this, it might be a good way to empty out like the last of a little bit of strawberry, a little bit of raspberry. I actually love these with membrio. If you have any of that lying around in your cupboard, it also lasts for years. I'm with you so far. I have every ingredient that you just listed. I'm so ready to do this. Okay, great, great. So standard cookie temperature, 350. All you have to do is whisk together the flour. That was two cups of flour, half a cup of cornmeal, and the half a teaspoon salt in a large bowl. And then in a stand mixer, but you don't have to use a stand mixer. The key to not using a stand mixer, if a recipe tells you to, is just make sure you're Butter is at the perfect mixing temperature. Not too hard, but not so soft that it's greasy. Nice soft butter. If you do have a mixer, cream together the butter, the sugar, the lemon zest. That was two-thirds of a cup of sugar until light and fluffy, two to three minutes. And then beat the egg yolks one at a time and the vanilla. And then mix in that dry flour mixture and then mix it up. And you don't even have to chill this dough. You can just shape heaping teaspoons of the dough onto your baking sheet, one inch apart, bake them for five minutes and then take it out and then make your thumbprints. I switch thumbs so my thumbs don't get too hot. Or if you're kind of a sissy, you could use the handle of a wooden spoon and then uh, bake them for five to eight minutes more until they're just getting golden on the edges and then Fill them with jam. That's it. This show is the most selfish show I have
2: ever done. Usually I'm trying to look for universal truth. And for those of you listening, like Susan has so much life experience and we're gonna get to that. I'm just trying to like (laughs) figure out how to feed my family for the next four weeks without driving everybody completely bananas. So you were telling us about your pantry. Your pantry is actually incredibly straightforward, right? So you have some beans and you have some vegetables. It doesn't seem like you have anything crazy in there. But somehow, every time I read a Susan's Spunkin recipe, and every time I look at the food in your cookbook, I just think, oh my God, that's such a clever little twist. So what are you like cooking right now? Like, What are you making for dinner? Is there anything on the stove? Like, What's going on in your house? So
1: dinner tonight is going to be kind of a classic or a chietti with sausage and not really broccoli, Rob, but broccoli. We picked some overwintered broccoli at our CSA, which is a pick your own farm the other day. So we have these beautiful little leafy bunchlets of broccoli. Now I know that not everyone has that, but you could do it with any kind of broccoli or broccoli, Rob. So we're, I'm going to probably do that slightly overcooked broccoli thing where it becomes kind of soft. And then believe it or not, we also found in the fields, figarello, I think it's called. It's kind of like kale. And it was so delightful. We went to our farm that we belonged to in the summer and found all these things growing. So we're going to go back there tomorrow in the good weather. So I'm going to use greens. And sausage, and I have arcchietti, which I usually keep in the house, and I actually bought an extra bag. So that's gonna be pretty straightforward. I mean, I think the big difference is I've been doing more like one bowl meals, like everything's been very bowl y rather than plated. That makes so much sense to me. And something that I've been
2: trying to do is to cook everything in one pot. So even if these things don't go together, like I had a string bean, soy, ginger that I sauteed and then moved it to the side, and then Adjacent to it, same pot, because I just could not bear to wash another dish, was tofu, spicy sesame oil, and then made something outside that pot. I have so much respect for people who are every night dinner cooks and have been forever. And I, I hate to sound like this is such an imposition. It's actually a great joy to be able to plan. I'm just not a very good planner.
1: I am a planner, so I did really stock up quite well. But I'm definitely spending less time shopping and more time cooking. And I'm also definitely trying to do two furs or or three furs. So when you don't just use canned beans, I mean, look, we all have time to cook beans right now. So whether you want to do, I like doing it on the stovetop, but I like to make a big pot of beans with broth from dry beans. And then you make other dishes from that, whether it's a soup or a chili or just bolster the broth and have it over rice or another grain, you shouldn't think of when you're cooking beans as like, this is just for one meal. Like you could even cook a whole pound of beans, which is a lot, and you could freeze some of them in the broth. That's what people don't realize that once you've cooked beans, they freeze incredibly well.
2: Well, I'd love to spend a little time talking about your history as a cook, as a recipe developer, as a stylist, and even growing up, because your life story is so amazing. So you guys stay with us. We're going to take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, you're going to get to hear a little bit about how one becomes really one of the best recipe developers, stylists, cooks, authors in the entire country. So stay with us. Restaurants across the country are in need of support as a result of the devastating effects COVID-19 is having on this industry. If we don't help now, some of our favorite community gathering spaces may not be there when this crisis is over. Restaurant Opportunities Center United has compiled a list of local resources supporting the restaurant industry from cities and states across the country. From North Carolina's Triangle Area Restaurant Workers Resources, to Nebraska's COVID-19 Response Fund, Minnesota's Immigrant Family Fund, Georgia's Giving Kitchen, and many, many more. We can all find a cause to support. Visit RockUnited.org/relief. That's R-O-C United.org/relief to find a list of national, state, and local resources. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. You're listening to Dana Cowan on Heritage Radio Network. My guest today is Susan Spungen, someone who is a phenomenal cook. If you have heard the last little bit, you've heard fantastic ways to freeze and keep your beans, what to do with broccoli stems, how to take those dried ancho chilies that are at the bottom of your drawer and make them into an incredible, all-powerful sauce. Now we're going to talk about how Susan has become the incredible cook that she is. And actually, Susan, I think I'm going to go in reverse order. You know, often we start with like, Tell me about your childhood. But in fact, I'm kind of interested in your most recent experiences in Hollywood because you've styled the food for some incredible movies. So maybe you could walk us through the different movies you've worked on and then we can talk a little about that
1: sure well starting from the beginning uh it's it's a fairly uh short resume so uh, um because as you know i mean working on these movies has been uh an, a great experience and it's sort of like a, a big big uh thing on my resume but i haven't spent That much time proportionally working on them so i think it was probably approximately 2008 i got a call to work on a little movie called julie and julia so that was the very first one that i worked on and it was you know based on one of the very early bloggers uh in the food world uh julie powell had written a book called julie and julia because her name was julie and she decided to take on as a project cooking every recipe out of Mastering the Art of French Cooking by Julia Child. And she wrote a blog. That's what the movie was based on, but it went deep into Julia Child's life as well. And it was incredible movie to work on, a great experience. Worked with Nora Ephron on her last film. And what can I say? It was a fantastic experience. I mean, Nora Ephron was a beautiful writer On food,
2: and she really, really cared. You know, when she put food in a movie, it had meaning, even if the movie itself wasn't about food. Did you get to spend time with her and like eat meals with her? What was that like? I mean, I I had one meal with her, and I just honestly I was like tongue tied and eye crossed. Yeah, we got
1: to know each other pretty well. I mean, very early on in the process, I actually did a lunch like with recipes from mastering their art of French cooking. So this was like in her apartment in New York City. And basically, I was making oeufs en gelée and all kinds of crazy things for um, this luncheon we had at her apartment. And then during filming the movie, you know, because we were often there until very late at night and one night a giant platter of Katz's sandwiches appeared or I think it was Grater's ice cream was her favorite ice cream and she had it shipped from Ohio you know things like that or she would have a crepe truck pull out outside or you know she wanted everybody to eat we all got really fat on that movie but it wasn't like let's just have craft services it was like no let's have real food well
2: what was it like cooking in Paris on a set.
1: Well, we didn't. We didn't. Most of it was done in Brooklyn. (laughs) That's the the magic of movie making is that it appeared that we were in Paris. But honestly, they took me to Paris almost as like a thank you gift because they didn't really need me when we were doing mostly exteriors in Paris. And maybe there was one cafe scene just to earn my keep. I, I did do one scene there. But most of the cooking took place in like a makeshift kitchen on a soundstage in Brooklyn.
2: It can be really hard to cook. On a sound stage, right
1: it's challenging. we didn't really have like plumbing, so we had this like jerry rigged sink, and it would clog up all the time and it, it it you know we had a we had a lot of space to work in, but sometimes it was like on the same stage we were working on, and it was like we couldn't make any noise. There's a lot of uh challenges, and sometimes the kitchen is sort of the last concern, but they did their best to give us what we needed. We had plenty of counter space we had ovens we had um refrigerators just the sink was not so great and i remember doing like duck something you know and it was like so greasy and we it was so hard to clean up okay so my movie resume i can't remember the exact order because i think i shot them in one order but they came out in another order then it was uh eat pray love and then it's complicated and then I did a little movie called Labor Day, which was all about a peach pie. But that was not as big of a movie as the other ones were. So
2: And so when people think about being on a movie set and doing food, I'm sure that they think that that could be. Their ultimate dream job, but it's something that you you did some of, and then you sort of stepped away from. Like, can you tell us about that decision? It wasn't
1: really a decision so much. It wouldn't say I really stepped away. It's just that the right opportunities didn't present themselves. I mean, I'm, I just sort of let my career flow a little bit. I let like if some, if an opportunity comes up, I'll take it. But I did, it wasn't like wow, I want to only do food and movies. I'm going to pursue that. Path. I never did that. I had other things I was working on. So when these opportunities would come up, I would take them. And then there was a certain point where people would call me for things. And I really only wanted to do food for movies when the food was like a a very important part of it a character in the movie, not just, you know, background food. Like you have people in a scene that are eating and you know, and So at one point I got a, sh- a call about uh, Sweet Bitter, which a show, but at that point, I think I was starting the book and I also was like, I don't know if I really want to do this right now. It doesn't seem like a good thing for me to be doing at this point in my career, working on especially episodic TV, because it's a little bit different than doing a movie. So I passed it along to one of my assistants who had just gone out on her own and I felt absolutely sure that she could handle it. And so she ended up doing uh, a couple seasons of Sweet Bitter. And then now she's the person that they call. I'll give her a shout out. Her name's Laura Kinsey. She was a fantastic assistant for a couple years for me. And now she's on her own. And
2: when you say that you've let your career sort of take its own path in a way, I, I'd love to know more about that.
1: Well, I think, you know, it's funny. I, you know, I was never like a good student. I went to art school. I didn't really have a big career plan. I really wanted to be an artist. That was all I ever thought about being when I was a kid and then a teenager and then a college student. I, I loved cooking and I loved food, but it, it wasn't even like something I even knew what could be a career option at that point. But then as I started to realize, well, maybe I'm not going to be an artist. And then I did start to go, on a food path. I actually always had a visual, which I will tell you about my life and my career. You know how when you're driving, you can see the road in front of you for a little bit and then you can't really see it anymore. Well, I never really tried having a five-year plan or anything like that, but I just tried to see that sort of road in front of me for a bit. What's this next stretch of road going to look like? So that's like, that's kind of how I've gone through my entire career, to be honest, which is, it's a bit meandering, I admit, but it's also allowed me to do different things and be flexible about what came along and not, not really say no to anything, because I feel like just saying yes, which is sort of one of my mottos has allowed me to really really almost like dabble in, in different areas a little bit and and become, as, as my old boss, Martha Stewart said, uh, well-rounded. That was one of the things she liked about me when we first met, because I already had had a variety of experiences. And she's like, you're well-rounded, you know? And I thought, yeah, that's a good thing to be, I think. Do you think being a food stylist
2: is a good career right now?
1: Oh, well, I do think it is, but there's also so many kinds of Quote unquote food stylists. I mean, people who style their own Instagram feeds consider themselves food stylists. But I'd almost say they're more like food artists in a way because they're like sort of executing this very specific vision that is very curated. And they are making food look beautiful, but it 's really different there 's this other side of making the famous lacquered turkeys and uh, you know using motor oil for pancake syrup and you know there 's different kinds of food styling there 's you know commercial jobs and then there 's more artistic things like cookbooks and and there's editorial, which is mostly very natural as well but What you have to do when you're a professional food stylist is have somebody hand you a ream of recipes. That would be the old fashioned way now via file and say, make these look good. That's your job. And you might have some real dogs in there that are really hard to make look good. That's something that I think someone who's just doing a blog or an Instagram who consider themselves a food stylist, they don't have the experience of having to work with clients, work with a crew, work with a team, work with a photographer and do all of that diplomatically, and work out all of the issues with the food sourcing. Something that's completely out of season, for instance. Oh my
2: gosh, that was our that was our forever challenge, right? We'd be shooting um, a turkey in July at Food and Wine, and. I mean, there was there's a week when there's no turkeys in the southern hemisphere and no turkeys in the northern hemisphere. And inevitably, that's when we were trying to shoot our Thanksgiving cover.
1: Well, I've never had that happen with turkeys. I've never had. I mean, I always said if I write a memoir, it's going to be called Turkey in August or something like that, because that is when everybody is shooting their holiday Issues, but it's the pumpkins that really cannot be found. You know, the funny thing is, is like they probably did it at Martha uh, once or twice. They will last almost a year, if not a year, if you store them properly. Like, let's say in your cool garage, I have a white pumpkin that I bought back in November that's still perfectly fine right now. But a lot of times people think if you're a food stylist that you can source something that simply doesn't exist. Like, well, we're hiring you to be a food stylist, so surely you can get. Whatever it is. You
2: started your um the food selling career at Martha Stewart living in nineteen ninety one. Were you the founding food editor?
1: I was. There was somebody else that did it for literally a few months, but that was before the magazine launched. So that's why I've always made the term founding food editor because from the launch issue on, I was the food editor because they did three test issues uh, that year, which I contributed to each one of them. But then I went off, off and did a restaurant job. I was the pastry chef at Coco Pazzo. Obviously, that was another huge thing that came to me that I wasn't expecting. But I was pursuing, at that point in my life, I was pursuing being a food stylist. So when I came upon the whole Martha Stewart experience, I was literally just looking to be a food stylist because I had read this article about it in the New York Times. And I thought, wow, that sounds great. I want to do that. And so while trying to just find out more about editorial, publishing, media, I met someone who introduced me to Martha as she was starting the magazine and looking for someone like me, apparently. So that's really like how it got started. So I became much more than a food stylist. But I also, I started off doing food, style, you know, because in the beginning, the needs were very practical. We need recipes, we need pictures of food. So I was just making all of that happen however I could. The magazine aesthetic is actually so
2: different from the cookbooks that she had done before. And so what was it like developing that together? Because it Really became the great identifier for that
1: brand. I certainly t- can't take credit for that single handedly. I think that because I was the food person, you know, people have said, oh, you changed, you know, the way this was done, which is partially true. But I mean, everyone was very experienced in their individual fields, but no one had made a magazine before. So we were very much not following the rules. And we were doing it the way we thought it would be best. So everyone contributed something. The the photo editor, the creative director who had the courage to work with photographers who didn't do food the way other people were doing it. Everybody had input. And so I feel like we created this look, all of us together. It
2: certainly revolutionized the, the magazine world. What was it like working with Martha? What were your takeaways obviously you worked super closely and obviously Martha's had a ton of press every which way but I'm curious what you learned from her as a business person and as a leader
1: well I certainly have thought about this a lot over the years and and like you said in the early days you know Martha was very hands on like I said my very first shoot which I did with Maria Robledo up at Martha's house in Connecticut in Turkey Hill. I mean, I, what I didn't mention was that Martha and I were sort of co-styling this shoot. We were doing it together. I mean, we didn't even have a, we didn't have recipes tested in advance or anything. It was like, Oh, let's just, Make stuff. Can you believe that? She would make something and then I would make something. And then she'd be like, Oh, that looks nice, do that. Oh, put some herbs on there. You know. I mean it was we were totally freestyling, if you can believe it. I mean,
2: for those of you who are listening, we're laughing because it just doesn't work that way. You have to have
1: Especially not now. I mean, any spontaneity that used to be in the magazine business has been completely killed and you know, every everything's done by committee and anyway, we won't go there. But I would really say that my main lessons from you know working not just with Martha but at Martha Stewart Living which became Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia when we went public I mean that was an experience for another conversation maybe but I think <clears throat> the main thing I learned from Martha and I can put this in one sentence just because it hasn't been done before is no reason not to do it because I saw her again and again just do things that had not been done before really in publishing and media. And, you know, just because it wasn't the regular way of doing it, it didn't mean you you shouldn't try it. And, and that's, that's how, you know, her business became what it was, just to break the rules.
2: And what's your view on perfectionism?
1: Ah, okay. I, I mean, I think even Martha's probably eased up quite a bit on that. But I think she became famous as a perfectionist. I definitely have perfectionistic Tendencies but I think they manifest in a very different way they're more about uh, I hold myself to kind of a high standard but I with my food I'm and my styling I am not a perfectionist I try to be much more kind of loose and free and with my recipes and cooking also I try to be more loose and and free so i i mean i definitely have those tendencies and i think a lot of us that worked at martha stewart living did have perfectionistic tendencies but um i think we only also try to ease up on them a bit (laughs) ourselves
2: so I know that when when you grew up, your sister moved to um, to New York before you and had sort of a, a wild life in New York City. I was wondering because you moved to New York later. Like, what was your expectation of moving to New York as a young person and figuring out like what you would do with your life and career?
1: I actually moved not from Philadelphia where I grew up, but from Aspen, Colorado, where I lived for a couple of years to New York. But I had always come to New York as a kid, because I grew up in Philadelphia. And so I I had a certain familiarity with it. And uh, honestly, I was living in Colorado. And I was like, well, maybe I'll move to San Francisco, or maybe I'll move to New York, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I just knew that if I put myself into a challenging situation, like moving to New York, I would somehow figure it out. Um, So like I was talking about earlier, being a bit aimless, That's a good way of describing it. And I, you know, was lost for a few years. I moved to Colorado to actually escape some of the trauma that happened in my life uh, at that time. So when I moved to New York, it was sort of immediately post-trauma. Did you, you felt lost when you got to, to New York as well? Well, a little bit. I was trying to find myself, let's say that.
2: And you tripped into a really unusual restaurant situation when you moved to New York. Do you want to talk about that?
1: There was a place called Food on uh, Prince Street, and uh, it's it was war- very well known by all the artists in New York. And It was started by Gordon Matta-Clark, who was a really interesting artist who died very young. And uh, it was really started as sort of almost like a soup kitchen slash canteen for all the artists that lived in Soho. And it was set up as a co-op where people had to... Uh, you know, work and all these artists, and this, this is not uncommon, were really, really interested in cooking and food. It was like almost another outlet as it is for me. And they they started this restaurant, which of course, financially wasn't really sustainable uh, the way they were doing it. And Gordon also might have become sick and even died. On, I don't know the whole timeline, but at some point it was sold as a commercial venture and it was made into not a co-op and more of a real restaurant a real business and that's kind of when I came in it was a few years after the heyday but it was sort of still a cool place to be uh in my early years in New York and I wasn't really cooking there I was working it was a counter service restaurant and um and I was uh I was actually a manager there
2: (laughs) I mean, something that you've described a couple of times is this like aimlessness. I wonder, um, you know, is there an emotional approach that you took to it? Like, did you feel anxiety when you were sort of aimless or did you find a way to sort of embrace it and, you know, relax into it? Like, what type of thoughts do you have on that?
1: I guess um, when I think back to it, uh, mostly I feel like I just had survival in mind, if that makes any sense. So, you know, I think because you're coming to New York, you had to make your rent. You had to feel like you were doing something meaningful, you know, not just doing nothing. It was kind of a combination of figuring out how to survive and to try to trying to do something meaningful. And so eventually I, I started to find my way and kind of craft a career for myself piece by piece.
2: I think what you said about the intersection of something with meaning and survival, that is absolutely the definition of this moment in time. And the idea of finding something that's original and not what everybody's doing, no matter, you know, how you find that for yourself, that, that seems like such a great, Takeaway,
1: and that you you just kept following your instincts, right? Right, and using my skill set, which had was quite varied, you know. So yes, totally was using my instincts and thinking where do I fit in? What what could I do that only I could do? Well,
2: actually, the point about the varied skill set is probably the most important thing because I think that that's where people sell themselves short. Um, at at the end of each show, I ask my guests two things: one for An item that is better than the hype.
1: Well, I I gave this a lot of thought, Dana. The one thing that I love is this particular uh, strainer kind of sieve from Muji, who has a lot of great actual kitchen items. A lot of times people don't think of going there like when they're outfitting their kitchen, but I feel like everything they have is fantastic. But they have this little stainless steel footed strainer sieve which I use for everything from draining pasta, if it's not a huge amount of pasta, washing berries, washing mushrooms. It's like equivalent to like those kind of round strainers that you always have to set over a bowl, but it has feet. So you don't have to set it over a bowl. And it drains really well. You know how colanders don't really drain well? They don't don't have enough holes. So this is like your typical screen sieve, but it's sort of a combo colander sieve. Great recommendation.
2: Okay. And is there a woman in the hospitality industry who you want to pay it forward to, who you believe more people need to know about?
1: Well, I mean, I don't think this person doesn't get recognition because they've had a lot of recognition, but um, I, I, I first met Liz Pruitt, the owner of Tartine many years ago when i was doing a, a location scout for martha stewart and they um had a little bakery in you know on the other side of the golden gate bridge and i remember walking into this little bakery and thinking wow i, I mean they had like i don't think i ever had seen a sheeter before and So I feel like I've just sort of followed along on their career. And then, you know, they went on to open Tartine and then all the other mega Tartines. And but, you know, not without difficulties in both business and personal life. And I just think that she's a great female role model for anyone. You know, she just really is kind of been enduring and um, and also endlessly creative. And I just think she's a great person.
2: Um, Well, great shout out to Liz. It's been a hard time for anybody in hospitality. And this has been a hard year for Tartine. You know, they established a particular type of bread program that was extraordinary. And every time I go to San Francisco, Tartine Manufacturing is the first place that I stop. And Liz has done an incredible job um, making that brand come to life. And this is obviously a challenging time for everybody. So I wish her all the best and I love that you called her out. Um, Susan, thank you so much for joining me today. I loved um, the fact that you solved some of my pantry and dinner problems. And I love going back through a bit of your extraordinary career, just just the highlight reel. And um, thank you all of you for listening. I hope you're staying home. I hope you're staying safe and I hope you're staying well fed. Uh, Have a great week, and we'll be back next week. Thanks again. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please,